Let's pray together before you have a seat. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to worship you this morning, and I pray truly that you would be glorified in us, and may we be satisfied in you, that we would find our satisfaction there at the cross where your blood flowed for us. Lord, we pray now as we come to your word that you would teach us to trust you more, that you would show us how to live for you, and by your spirit speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you been paying attention to what we've been doing today? Did you just take what we did seriously? I mean, at least most of you obeyed the biblical command to sing to the Lord. If you didn't, then you probably have your answer on whether or not you took it seriously. But most of you did sing, and you at least seemed to, pay, to focus on praying and and reading scripture, but I can't see your hearts. Do you, do you feel that you worshipped the Lord? Did your heart rejoice in your Redeemer? Did you see him as your greatest treasure? I hope so, but if not, when was the last time that you did rejoice in your Savior? My, my main question today is this. Are you being careful about how you worship? Are you being careful about how you worship? After all, when you come to worship the Lord, you are in the very presence of the creator and sustainer of the world right now. In a day of strobe lights and professional musicians and podcasts and rock star preachers, it can be easy to see worship as something to consume, just to, to take in, not to pour out. And in a day of a million commitments and a, a zillion distractions, it can be easy to see worship as just one more thing on our calendars or on our to-do list, not as the one foundational thing that should surpass and encompass all other things. But there's a, a reason that the Ten Commandments begin with the command to worship God and to worship God alone and the second commandment repudiates false worship. Part of God's plan, his redemption plan throughout history, is the restoration of the true worship of God. And in the culmination of history, as described in Revelation 22, wait on, yeah, the culmination of history as described in Revelation 22 includes the fact that in the eternal city of God, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Worship. Thus, it makes complete sense as Moses begins restating God's law for God's people that he would begin with commands and instructions regarding worship, which we'll be considering today. Let's open up to, to Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. 
So far in Deuteronomy, we've gotten a great overview of the history of God's people to this point. We've also gotten rather great overviews of the law itself, with Moses reminding people of both the Ten Commandments and the Shema, the, the supreme command to love God. Chapter 12 begins a clear new section in Moses' sermons, though, where he gets very specific. This is where we start to see a lot more of the you shalls and you shall nots. But, well, some things might seem a bit strange to us. I don't believe it will get anything less interesting. After all, this is a very ignored portion of Scripture. And remember that, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for training in righteousness. What that means is that every passage has the potential to change your life, no matter where it is. Numerous times Moses has told the Israelites to be careful to obey or to do the law he gave them. The title statement in chapter 12, though, is a bit different. It says this, you can follow along with me in verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Here we go. So he's finally done with the introduction. Now it's these are the statutes and rules. Like I mentioned, Moses begins this recap of the law by focusing on the proper worship of God. But interestingly, he doesn't just give the command, worship God and him alone. No, he actually starts rather negatively, even on the attack. Look what he says. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And what I think that we can learn here, which can be abstracted out to apply to us as well, is this. Careful worship, careful worship starts with removing corruption. And if we're going to be careful about the way that we worship God, we must start by removing corruption. What we have commanded here is a, a radical break with any corrupted forms of worship. The promised land the Israelites was about to enter was a land of pervasive idolatry. Like, you know, we've, we've been talking about this with, with countless holy sites all over the countryside, especially on mountains and hills. And in these sites, false worship would be accompanied by unspeakably evil actions and practices, including every flavor of sexual perversion and abundant child sacrifice. God wanted his people to have nothing to do with these practices. He didn't even want them tempted by them. So he tells them to, to surely destroy or to utterly or completely demolish these sites, to, to ruthlessly tear down any idolatrous infrastructure they found there. There's a very unique command in verse 3, though. It says, You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. In verse 5, we're going to see God choosing a place in the promised land to put his name. See, names 
of deities represented something of their presence and their power. And so to remove their names, whether Moses means that literal or figurative or both, to remove their names was symbolic of removing their presence and their power. You know the, the big arena out in Canada where the Senators play, how it keeps getting renamed? One day it was the Palladium, then it was the Corral Center, and then Scotiabank Place. Now it's the Canadian Tire Center. It's because some companies pay big bucks to, to buy the naming rights, to have the naming rights of the place. And th they get the notoriety, the advertising that goes along with that, at least until their contract runs out. Uh, we sometimes see maybe a little bit of a similar thing when you see a company go over an overhaul or a business, maybe their owner dies or retires or sells, and you'll see the, they often see a renaming or a rebranding. In essence, God wanted Canaan rebranded as his land. He was acquiring the naming rights. And that meant scrubbing the names of past owners from the record. Chris Wright comments that they could not coexist. The names of other gods must be deleted, destroyed, along with all their paraphernalia. The change must be radical. Negating one group of names and establishing another name, in effect, calls for a new order, a transformation. The promised land was about to be under new management. Oh. Of course, verses like these that we just read tend to grate against the pluralistic tolerance of today. Saying that any other religion, as, no matter how barbaric, saying any other religion could be false is abhorrent today. Don Carson has taken part in university evangelism for 45 years, and he says that over the last 15 years, the only two things that tend to get students riled up against Christian speakers that come in, one is any attempt to define sin in an absolute way, not a relativistic way, and second, any exclusive claim to the gospel. And here we have Moses saying to completely destroy all the sinful places of worship of all the other gods. If this was commanded today, it would be denounced as arrogant cultural imperialism. But don't forget what we've already talked about this being. This was a long coming and deserved judgment from God. That's what it was. God determined it. And God has every right to demand exclusivity as really he is the only true God. Pluralism rejects that as a possibility outright. They assume there cannot be one true God. But that's not only illogical, this scripture would say it's completely incorrect. Also remember that Israel was not a democracy at this time. They were a covenant people of God. We are not even close to being in the same position that Israel was in then. The equivalent decree for Christians would be something like maintaining proper church discipline. Not to, to go around enforcing Christian beliefs on the outside world. So, in other words, don't go visit a Hindu temple in town and start smashing things. Okay? Share the gospel plead with people to come to Christ, 
but leave the other things like justice to God. Even here in Deuteronomy, the focus is internal, not external. Moses doesn't say, don't allow other people to worship in this way. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So leaving these places intact would not only tempt people to worship false gods, in other words, they, it would actually, could actually contaminate the true worship of God. And he didn't want to be worshipped in that way. He didn't want a bunch of shrines or statues set up for him everywhere. He, didn't want, he definitely didn't want their detestable practices getting mixed into his worship. So he wanted them to get rid of all the pre-existing corruption in the land. Likewise, we should seek to purify our hearts and our churches if we want to worship God well. However you define worship, it is no less than praising and honoring and loving the Lord. So anything that would seek to distract us from that end could be a corruption. And that could be superficial things like fog machines and lights and guitar solos. Anything that detracts from the object of worship and puts the emphasis on our own personal experience. But I think the, the more direct parallel would be the corruption within our own hearts. To use the language of Hebrews, we must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely Looking to Jesus. So anything that derails our focus on Jesus must go. And nothing is better at that than the sin that so stubbornly clings to us. Clouding our hearts with guilt and shame. Preventing us from approaching God with undivided attention or affection. So really this this calls for repentance. Radical repentance. Violent repentance, even. Paul goes so, uh, so far as to call ongoing repentance in our lives the mortification or the murder of sin. Killing sin. Sin is an enemy that will destroy you if you don't destroy it first. So be ruthless with it. Destroy the names of the personal idols you have in your heart, in the high places in your heart. That's where we must start if we're going to be careful with our worship. To come clean. One of the easiest ways that we can corrupt worship is by thinking it's all about us. It's not. Moses was basically like, you've got to worship God's way, the way he sets out, not the way others worship and not the way that, just any way that you might come up with, the way God wants. In verse 5 and following, we're going to see the positive side of how God wanted them to worship. And throughout the passage, it's like God is pitting his opinion versus our opinion, his choices versus our choices, his preferences versus our preferences. I believe this point will be very clearly seen. Careful worship seeks the Lord's will, not our own. 
Careful worship seeks to follow God's will, not our own will. Verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So, instead of worshiping all over the place, the worship of God was to be centralized in one specially chosen location. The point wasn't that God couldn't be worshipped anywhere. Of course he could. The point was that they were to worship in the place that God chose. The place where he would put his name in a special way, claiming ownership. A place where he would have his habitation, where his presence would dwell in a special way. All modern-day countries choose a capital city where their governments will be centered. You know the story of how Ottawa was chosen as Canada's capital? In 1857, Queen Victoria decided that Ottawa, which was just a small logging town at the time, would be the best location to represent English and French Canada. It was right near where both of them were, so it represented that well. Also, the War of 1812 was fresh on their minds, and so they wanted a place that wasn't right along the U.S. border, somewhere further in where they'd be safer from attack if they ever had another war. One newspaper remarked that Ottawa was safe from attack because any invader would get lost in the woods trying to find it. <laughs> in Israel's case, a king or a queen would not be responsible for choosing. God would. And the center for worship was far more important than the center for government. Though really as a theocracy under God, they were one and the same. The point of all this is that their worship was to take place at the place that God picked. For old covenant people, their worship consisted primarily of sacrifices and offerings. And verse 6 gives a long list of the various kinds of sacrifices that would be offered. But verse 7 adds a couple other key pieces of their worship. Look with me, it says, And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Now that sure sounds like boring drudgery, doesn't it? No. It sounds like a party. Right? It sounds like a party. God is not a, a killjoy here. He even commands eating and rejoicing. And just because they couldn't have like the Canaanite-style sex festivals doesn't mean they couldn't have fun. Chris Wright says, Canaanite depravity was to be replaced by Israelite purity. But Israel's, the Israelites could still enjoy their worship physically and emotionally. Eat and rejoice. There is the rich and liberating call for wholehearted rejoicing before God, which by consecrating all of life to God, liberates the ordinary and the secular to be enjoyed under God's blessing. 
We may wonder, well, why were they to eat before the Lord? Now, that refers to the practice of eating certain portions of sacrifices after they were offered. But, but that's quite the picture of eating before the Lord, eating in his presence, in other words. Living in the, in the presence and in the sight of God is a recurring theme in this chapter. Here it's like God is the host of the party and his people are the invited guests. Now, it's striking that in Scripture... We are never told to ask God to come and enter our presence. We respond to his invitation to enter his presence. After all, he is everywhere, all the time. And just as God was promising to bless his people abundantly in the days ahead here, really we're looking back on this and we can say he's already blessed us abundantly through his Son, through his Spirit. And so the call to rejoice should sound even more powerfully for believers now. Verse 7, Then there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. If the Israelites were to give back with their sacrifices and, and share fellowship and to celebrate God's blessings, how much more should we, whose sins have been washed away by Jesus' sacrifice, who have been invited in and called into fellowship with Christ himself, and who in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? The automatic response to these blessings should be joy. It should be gratitude. Thankful rejoicing. And if you haven't been blessed in those ways yet, the, really the invitation has been sent to you. The question is, will you respond? Christ died so you wouldn't have to keep making all these sacrifices for your sin. And he rose, offering new life in his presence, which will last forever. So, so won't you respond to his invitation today? Come into his presence. Let, let his light blaze away the darkness in you. The point of this passage really is that worship is all about God. It's all about his will, worshiping God. His way. Daniel Block concludes that, that worship must be designed to please the object of worship, not the worshipers. In the end, the divine verdict on our worship is the only verdict that matters. True worship involves an audience with a divine king and transpires in God's place by God's invitation on God's terms. Francis Chan says that when he was a pastor, someone once complained to him that they didn't enjoy worship that day. He replied, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. Careful worship seeks God's will, not ours. God's pleasure, not ours. If this wasn't clear yet, keep reading. Verse 8. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God 
is giving you. Apparently, people were doing whatever they wanted to do to worship God, never stopping to ask, how did God want us to worship him? The solution, at least for the Israelites, was that centralization of worship. Verse 10, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that's within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now these verses repeat a lot of things. Verse 10, though, makes it clear that God was doing all the work. He was the one blessing them. They weren't blessing themselves. So, so God is the one who deserved their praise. Verse 12 also emphasized how their worship was to be a community-wide endeavor. For now, notice that everyone was encouraged to rejoice before the Lord, regardless of station in life or status or circumstances or gender or age. So kids who are here, just because you are just as encouraged as your parents to rejoice before the Lord. Like, don't be afraid. You can sing, you can pray, you can read, you can give, you can rejoice. Everyone can. Verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see or just anywhere you please. But at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Once the Israelites had entered Canaan, they first worshipped at an altar on Mount Ebal. Soon after that, they had established, they had set up the tabernacle indefinitely at a place called Shiloh. Eventually, a few generations later, Shiloh was destroyed. And when King David came along, he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, where God told him that his son would build a temple for him there in Jerusalem. Once Solomon did that, Jerusalem became Israel's one central place of worship. That is, until Jesus came along and fulfilled the sacrificial system and the temple in himself. Things have changed now. See, for Israel, worship was centralized for strategic reasons for a time. But under Christ, worship has been re-decentralized. It's gone global. Like Jesus talked about in John 4 when he was speaking with the Samaritan woman. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now that didn't mean that Israel's worship was never in spirit or truth. It meant that the, the essence of true worship would be recovered as the focus would shift to the object of worship instead of the place. Tragically, when Christ traveled to Jerusalem and he went to the temple, 
He only found corruption there. It, all, it invaded all the way to the heart. And so Jesus declared that the temple would be destroyed, would be torn down and raised up three days later. Now John in his gospel says that when he made that cryptic declaration, he was talking about his own body. How he would die and be raised as a new temple for God's people. So, so George Athens explains, all this means that in Jesus a critical shift has occurred. Sacred geography has been focused in the person of Jesus such that he himself has now become the one place in which to worship God. Athens then suggests that we might picture the difference between a landline and a mobile telephone. Okay? And these days, kids might look at an older phone and say, what in the world is the cord for? <laughs> but, but not so long ago, you couldn't talk on a phone without a cord. Right? And that cord was attached to a base, which had to be attached to a wall jack in the wall, which had to be connected to telephone wires. And in order to make a call, you actually had to go to the phone and you had to stay there. But now things are a lot different. Right? Our, our phones can connect wirelessly to anywhere and from anywhere. We're not limited to a single location. And communication just flows easily, clearly. George Athos concludes, Deuteronomy 12 is like an old phone. It required Israel to come to one location in order to interact with God. Under Jesus, however, the new covenant is like a mobile smartphone. It gives people the freedom to call on God from anywhere in the world and to enjoy greater clarity in this relationship. All that is required is the Spirit. So, rejoice! We now have the Spirit. So we have all that's required. Every moment of our lives is now lived before the Lord in His presence by the Spirit. But there's still something special about Worshiping in the company of others. I might get encouraged here in verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that was within your town. See, in, in fellowship with other believers, our rejoicing should escalate and intensify. And the point, that point is driven home over the next paragraphs. Here's what I believe we're going to see. Careful worship celebrates all God's blessings together. Okay, careful worship celebrates all of God's blessings together in community. In verse 15, Moses begins addressing a very practical concern the Israelites would have had at this point. See, when they were in the desert, God had given them a law about how they could slaughter animals for food. And Leviticus 17 says that if they wanted to eat a, a sheep or a goat or a cow, these are sacrificial animals, if they wanted to eat one of these, they, they could only kill them after they went through a proper ritual at the tabernacle. But once they get into the promised land, people are going to be spread all over the country. It would be extremely impractical, prohibitive even, to, to have to travel to the tabernacle every time that you wanted to have lamb or brisket or steak. So how is this going to work? Well, Moses responds by actually loosening up that law. It's like, this was for a time. Now things have changed. He allows a lot more freedom. 
they still had to do their sacrifices at that chosen place. Like verse 14 said, but at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I'm commanding you. Verse 15, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Gazelle and deer is shorthand for wild game, which those restrictions in the desert hadn't applied to. So now there's going to be no restrictions on eating these meats anywhere you choose at any time. They, they could just enjoy God's blessings. The only, the only restriction was the continuing need to not eat blood. Verse 16 says, Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. That ritual was meant to remind them of the sacredness of life. That even animal life, the life of an animal was to be respected. Gratitude for it. Moses then again repeats the command to eat of their offerings only in one place. It says, you may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your free will offerings or the contribution that you present. Verse 18, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. It's like sacrifices, they're still here. But stake Eat your heart out. They, they didn't need to, to wait for God's party to celebrate God's goodness. And really, that's what this is all about. It was celebrating God's blessings, his goodness to them. Like verse 15, however, you may slaughter, you may eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. And in verse, 15, verse 18, again Moses will say, Rejoice, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Have you noticed something about these commands? They're all so communal. Right? Back in verse 7, the people were told to rejoice with their entire households and families. Verse 12 expanded that to whole neighborhoods. And that's repeated in verse 18. Both of those verses noted to include the Levites, who didn't own their own land the time. Also verse 19 says the same. It says, take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. This would show social inclusiveness and compassion. And in verse 15, the whole town could celebrate God's goodness. The entire town, clean or unclean. Now if you know anything about the law and the ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness, the, the, the unclean were not allowed to do a number of things in the lifestyle. They couldn't do certain rituals and sacrifices. But here it says, they weren't to be excluded from enjoying the family meals. They were to be able to celebrate. What I see here is a continual theme of worshiping with an eye towards the people around you. We're obviously not to worship the people around us, but God's people are called to worship 
in community, as the people of God, together. And worship, it can be done alone, but in its normal, ideal state, it is communal. I mean, this is why uh, live feeds, watching things at home, it's not a good substitute gathering as God's people. There may be people watching to avoid the freezing rain today. Okay, It's great to be able to tune in for, for sicknesses or traveling or if you're at work or things like that, but it's not. It's a poor substitute for gathering and worshiping as the people of God. It's better to be here with people. Worshiping together, it can really be an act of defiance against our fiercely individualistic culture. And there there are always two sides to our worship, to our corporate worship. Most importantly, it is communing with God. Of course, that's easy. But as a secondary purpose, it's to commune with one another. Both Both sides we've seen in Ephesians 5, where it says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both sides, to each other and to the Lord. Listen to how Moses continues, verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat, you may eat meat whenever you desire. That's interesting. Are you ever afraid of enjoying the good gifts that God gives you in life? Like you could enjoy them too much? Yes, we have to deny ourselves to follow Christ. And yes, there's plenty of of fleshly desires that we may need to give up to follow him. But we should never go so far as denying ourselves all pleasure whatsoever. Why not? Because God gives us things, and he wants us to enjoy them. They're from him. Verse 20, like I said, And you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. You may eat meat whenever you desire. So not all cravings are bad. Our gratitude just has to be directed to the right place. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on the last paragraph for today as it repeats a lot of things. We'll just read it together. Verse 21. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you. And you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now notice again the the emphasis on doing what is right in the sight of God. He's watching. 
He cares. He's revealed his will to us. Many of these ceremonial laws have changed for believers in Christ. Even not eating blood appears to be a gray area in the New Testament. But what has not changed? What has not changed is the need to seek His will above all and to do what is right in His sight. And that idea is reinforced one more time. Verse 26. But the holy things that are due from you and your vow offerings you shall take, and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose, and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat. Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. The final point I'll leave you with today could be seen as a summary of the whole passage. But I think it's especially noticeable in the last few verses. It's that careful worship takes worship seriously. Careful worship takes it seriously. In particular, notice the comment that Moses makes at the beginning of verse 26. He just said, but the holy things that are due from you. Like, the holy things or the consecrated or the sacred things were due from them. So there is this expectation from God that they would do this. Like, taxes are due. Or library books are due. Or babies are due to be born. Right? If those things don't happen, something's wrong. God places a holy expectation of worship on his people. He requires a response from us. First, because he fully deserves it. Second, because we were created for it. Importantly, our blessings certainly call for it should naturally flow from us. And because we will find our greatest joy in rejoicing in the Lord and enjoying Him. Therefore, worship in God's presence should be approached with great seriousness. As Daniel Block says, The redeemed anticipate worship with both delight and sobriety. On the one hand, those who worship God in spirit and in truth realize the incredible grace that God has lavished on them, first in his redemption and second in his invitation to enter his presence. On the other hand, those who worship God in spirit and in truth are awed by the responsibility. True worship is never flippant or casual. You may need to consider some serious changes to your lifestyle or your current habits if you're going to reprioritize worship and fellowship in your life. It could be as simple as going to sleep earlier on Saturdays so you can worship the Lord better on Sundays. Some of you are asleep right now. Maybe to not 
joke or horse around with people as you gather to worship the Lord. To, to take steps to intentionally focus your heart on Him. Maybe it's to, to not just take it all in like a consumer, but to worship, to pour it out. When you hear serious, you may think passionless or boring or no fun. But no, this passage is, is very clear and much more balanced, right? We've got to take worship seriously, but we should also be constantly rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. It's like we've got to take our rejoicing seriously so we can seriously rejoice. Our ambition should be to be, as Paul described himself in 2 Corinthians 6, as sorrowful yet always Rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Do you realize that in Christ we possess everything? And that by his own blood? We have endless reason to rejoice in the Lord always. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. His name. His name, which is above all other names. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you awaken us from our slumber today? Awaken in our hearts a passion for your glory, for your praise. Lord, you know where we stand with you. You know if we have grown cold. You know if we have never loved you. By your Spirit, move in us today. Help us to see what you have done, and more importantly, who you are. And help us worship you accordingly, we pray. Today, and tomorrow, and the next day, every day. Keep this at the forefront of our hearts. Your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.